This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. It is the best bits of the show from Monday, the 15th of January. What can we tell you? Well, going to kick off by looking at the Red Sea. The situation there is evolving. Going to get the latest on the impacts and some of the other big stories that we've been looking at this morning. In particular, going to hear from Christian Rulofs, who's the CEO of a company called Container Exchange. It's based out of Hamburg in Germany. He joined us live. Also going to focus on the job market this morning. I wouldn't say it's booming, but it is robust, particularly if you're prepared to move to Riyadh. Let's get the thoughts of Slav Shakov, who's a managing partner at the recruitment firm Cooper Fitch. And finally, on the buses with James Mullen, the founder of Which School Advisor Why? Well, he thinks Dubai should take a leaf out of Montpellier's book. The French city has offered free school buses to try and alleviate traffic. Could it work here? All that to come. First up, though, our top business stories. We are focusing very strongly this morning on a story that has been rumbling on for a wee while, looking at the economic impacts of what has been happening in the Red Sea. Uh, strikes this weekend escalating uh, tensions around the situation. We've been looking at how that's been bearing out in the oil price this morning. Uh, But we are looking not just at the wider economic picture, but in some of the macro uh, markets as well. Um, On the oil price, Daniel Richards fulfilling that particular role this morning, senior economist at Emirates NBD. Uh, Flip-flopping week last week, we saw Brent over the weekend up to $80 a barrel. Uh, We're back down to, when did I last look at it? About 78 at the moment. Yep, 78 and a half. Uh, What could we see this week, Daniel? Oil prices really continue to be buffeted by headlines regarding unrest in the Red Sea and wider region over the last week. But at the close on Friday, it's really the ongoing stream of pretty weaker data points coming out globally and the implications thereof for demand that won out in terms of what was a key price driver. So both benchmarks ended the week lower last week, with Brent futures ending at $78.3 a barrel, down 0.6% over a week. But as I say, it kind of hides some of the volatility we saw in prices over the course of those five days. Now, looking ahead to this week, we kind of expect more of the same. It doesn't appear to be any imminent let-up in Red Sea tensions, unfortunately, although hopefully the risk of a wider spread of conflict does appear to be contained for the time being, at least, and, and, and we hope that would hold, of course. And on the other hand, though, we don't really have the kind of major data releases like the, the US CPI print, for example, that we had last week. So a primary driver of moves could well be headlines once again. So far this morning, uh, prices are holding fairly steady. And indeed, for the year as a whole, we project that prices will average pretty similar to what we saw last year, which is $82 a barrel. Speaking of prices and the Red Sea, Rich, a little bit later on, is going to be speaking to a man who runs a container exchange. That's right, crossing live to Hamburg, where the online container exchange... Container Exchange is its name, is based. Christian Rulofs is going to be joining us live. He says short term, and they have an index of prices in the container shipping industry and where they're likely to be headed. It's at a record high at the moment. Interestingly, though, Christoph plays down the medium to long term implications. He says the world still has an excess of containers. There was more than enough to go around. So he doesn't see this being a medium to long term spike, more of a short term spike. With the caveat, of course, and we heard this from Ziad at Bloomberg a few minutes ago, 
no one knows how the geopolitics are going to play out. But as things stand, he sees it as a short-term pinch point rather than a long-term issue. All right, so that's the business side of it. Other than that, very nice weekend for sport. Tom Urquhart was out and about on the Sunday morning. Yesterday, uh, yesterday afternoon, popped down to the Dubai Creek Golf and Yacht Club. Uh, why? Because it was the final day of the Dubai Invitational. They had a night near on a perfect leaderboard going into the final one. Why? Roy McIlroy, um, habitual winner here in the UAE, uh, no stranger to this part of the world, likes winning golf tournaments here. Uh, he was going out with Tommy Fleetwood, who is one of the UAE's uh, latest big name residents. I mean, I say latest. Tommy um, uh, has been here for several years now, but he's laid down his roots here in many ways. Lives up at JGE. He's set up his uh, Tommy Fleetwood Academy up at the Jumeirah Golf Estates as well. Uh, not one here in Dubai before until yesterday. Stunning finish uh, in the last couple of holes. A couple of birdies, back-to-back birdies, uh, seeing a dramatic win on the 18th back at the Dubai Creek uh, Golf and Yacht Club, or the Dubai Creek Golf Club, as we need to say. You don't need the yachting bit, although uh, it, that is the official title. But uh, it was good. It hasn't had, We haven't had competition golf there. I mean, international competition golf there for, for some time. Um, there were lots of good stories coming out of that one. The, 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 the fairy tale ending for Tommy, uh, one of Dubai's favourites, and he was cheered on by a good crowd down there. Uh, overall, everyone very happy with uh, the first, the inaugural, um, a Dubai Invitational brought to you by uh, Al Nabuda and uh, kudos to the Al Nabuda family for putting this one on. Bit of a pro-am thing, so you had the, pro, the, the, the AMs joining the pros in the first three rounds. Uh, there was a great story at the other end of the table, though, as well, which got a lot of the pros talking uh, both on and off the course. Um, Tommy Fleetwood, the man who walked away with the title. If you are looking at the leaderboard, have a look at the other end. Uh, there was um, an American golfer who finished... 53 over par for the tournament. And let's just say, Richard Dean is is showing a face that I think a lot of people will be thinking now is going, ouch. And what was fascinating is because this was a pro-am event, you know, the chat in the clubhouse on the 19th was, was he a pro, was he an am? What was going on? 53 over for the tournament. No big surprise. He was unavailable for comment after his final round. That is a bad day at the office, isn't it? (laughs) It was picked up on by all of the international newspapers. So, yeah, a lot of focus on what was going on. But, the, yeah, this one was one that caught the imagination of many. And he even caught the imagination. There's the unwritten rule. You know, if you're having a bad day at the office, a lot of your fellow pros do not talk about it because anyone can have a bad day at the office, as we well know. They were talking about it. Um, it, was, it became talk of the course, let's, let's say. Well, speaking of sporting fixtures ending up in international newspapers, uh, Richard Dean's son making headlines over the weekend, making the Daily Star. Yeah, which is a, a British newspaper. Uh, this is the headline in the Daily Star this morning. Christian Eriksen gives mascot his coat to keep warm as Man United fans praise a gentleman. Christian Eriksen, the Danish international and Manchester United player. Um, yesterday, Man United played Tottenham and my son was the mascot for the game. Uh, so we flew over there on Saturday and he walked out with the players absolutely freezing in Manchester yesterday. And the, the mascots have to wear the kit, shorts, t-shirt and whatever. And he was in the tunnel absolutely freezing. So Christian Eriksen gave him his jacket. So there's a picture in the Daily Star of my son Cameron. Oh, it's beautiful. Sorry, proud dad moment, whatever. Tearjerker of Christian Eriksen putting his jacket over Cameron's shoulders to keep him warm. And Cameron got to keep the jacket. 
Which is lovely. Which is lovely. So, yeah, really enjoyed that one yesterday, obviously, as did my son. The game finished 2-2. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Let's get the latest on the Suez Canal crisis and the Red Sea crisis in a moment. We are going to hear from one container expert in Hamburg shortly. But staying with the German theme, let's remind ourselves what we heard earlier on today from Dr. Manfred Braunel, the CEO of Porsche for the Middle East and and Africa, speaking to Tom about, among other things, the impact that the Red Sea shipping crisis is having on costs and delays. Uh, costs right now are not, so there is no cost increase or um, no no price increase whatsoever. Delays, I mean, if this, of, of course, would continue, uh, it could cause delays at this point in time. Yes, of course, if a ship has to take the longer route, um, this will cause a couple of weeks uh, of delay. Uh, so we just hope that this will not really continue and, and then we'll see. Kristen Roloffs is the CEO of Container Exchange in Hamburg, joins us now live on the line. Morning, Christian. Morning, Richard. Waking up on a Monday morning, what news have you and your clients had to digest over the weekend? Over the weekend, uh, things have been relatively calm, uh, so to speak. Of course, there was a few uh, exciting past weeks uh, where uh, events have uh, uh, overtaken each other, uh, so to speak, especially uh, in the Middle East and uh, around the Suez Canal. Um, and of course, uh, we're we're very keen to see uh, what this uh, what this week will bring. Well, let's look at the index that you guys at Container Exchange produce. You're an online portal for for moving containers around the world. You've got a sentiment index. I was looking at this on LinkedIn over the weekend, and you say it hit an all time high at the back end of last week. What does that tell us about container shipping prices? Yeah, so this index uh, is primarily um, aimed at uh, container uh, traders and uh, and and operators. I'm really um, showing the sentiment um, uh, about container prices in the upcoming uh, few weeks and months. So essentially, um, does the industry expect an increase in container prices, uh, yes or no? And um, as you've rightly said, um, the index hit an all-time high uh, just last week, um, indicating that the industry expects uh, further increases in container prices. Um, And that's an an indicator for container scarcity. Um, A lot has been talked about uh, container shipping capacity uh, being limited or impacted by the diversion um, around the the Cape of Good Hope. Um, And of course, this also has impact on containers. So the uh, steel boxes itself, um, they uh, tend to then be at the wrong place in the wrong time. And we've seen uh, what this means uh, during COVID, um, essentially uh, increased uh, shipping delays and costs. Um, and that's uh, uh, essentially what the industry is, uh, is, is anticipating right now, especially uh, in the run up uh, to the Chinese New Year, where typically all carriers tend to uh, relocate uh, as much of their equipment to uh, to Asia as possible. So what are we seeing in terms of prices? I know one of the benchmarks is moving a TEU, a, a container from Shanghai to Rotterdam, and that has been affected. And your platform is one of the ones that, that shipping companies use to, to trade these things. Where are we now in terms of a price per container on Monday, the 15th of January, as opposed to three months ago? As opposed to three months ago, roughly uh, on the on the on the shipping um, freight, uh, roughly 200 to 400% higher than just a few uh, weeks ago. Um, on the containers, uh, price increases have been a little bit slower, um, sort of 20 to 30% above uh, what we've seen um, uh, just, just a few weeks ago. And you say when it comes to containers, while yes, there's a spike in prices in the short term, and that's set to continue according to your research, but I was listening to you over the weekend saying, actually, medium to long term, you're not concerned because you say there's lots of excess capacity when it comes to containers in the world? 
Absolutely. And that's true, uh, not just for containers, but also for vessel capacity. Um, what happened after COVID was that, or during COVID actually, uh, was that the industry uh, was very excited. There's lots of profit. Uh, there's a very, very high rates uh, in, the, in the market. And so everybody has started to order a lot of capacity, um, both vessels um, that tended to take uh, two to three years to come online uh, to be produced and manufactured, so to speak, and they come online now, um, as well as containers. Um, and so what we, what we see in the industry is a significant level of overcapacity, um, too many containers, too many vessels for too little uh, demand, too little freight. Um, and that's an advantage right now uh, because these disruptions that we see now, these diversions, they essentially soak up capacity. Um, and that's, uh, of course, uh, not an issue if there is ample capacity in the market. Um, and so what this what this means ultimately for us is that we, that we believe that um, there's not really a... Uh, key driver for cost increases just by those diversions there's enough capacity uh, it's just maybe a three to five hundred dollar uh, sort of cost increase um, uh, that is justified uh, by the longer route uh, rather Cape foothold we've got a big focus of course on the Suez canal at the moment because of what's happening there and it's in our region the middle east but the other canal panama also has its challenges but that's to do with climate and drought yeah, you're right. So the Panama Canal, um, that has uh, actually started a few months ago already, has experienced significant uh, drought, uh, and that's um, that's impacting water levels in the sort of artificial uh, lake that feeds or supports the Pan- uh, Panama Canal. Um, and that means that the Panama Canal authorities has, have had to limit the number of uh, transits that they allowed per day. And also, and that's even more important for uh, container shipping, they had to limit the uh, yeah, capacity that each vessel was allowed to carry uh, through the uh, canal. Um, and that has been an issue, particularly for the U.S. East Coast, because most of the U.S. East Coast imports from Asia um, use the Panama Canal um, yeah, uh, as, a, as a shortcut uh, to not go around uh, Cape Horn. What about the global macroeconomic environment and what that means for demand for trade? I'm getting mixed signals. We've got German GDP out later today, your home country. That's expected to show a mild recession in Germany. Yet Chinese GDP is out on Wednesday and we're looking at maybe 7% growth for the most recent quarter in China. Yeah, that's, of course, a, a very, very positive surprise there on, on China. Um, on Europe, um, things have looked a little bit bleak uh, already for the past couple of months, um, not just Germany, uh, but uh, all over all over Europe. Uh, we've seen um, negative signals and negative uh, sort of demand indicators. Um, and then the U.S., of course, is also um, a big, big question mark uh, whether we will be able to um, do a soft landing, whether the uh, Fed will be able to steer interest rates in a way that allows the economy to uh, uh, soften uh, sort of slowly or whether we've seen a, a, a hard landing, a recession. Um, and ultimately, I cannot believe that um, if uh, Europe and uh, the U.S. Um, sign- experience significant recessions, that China will continue to boom. Uh, but for the moment, uh, of course, uh, Chinese figures uh, do look uh, promising and do look good. A final word on what it means for us here in Dubai, of course, one of the world's major container shipping ports. Just last week, we had Sultan Ahmed bin Salayam of DP World in India announcing $3 billion worth of investments in, in Gujarat state alone. What does all this mean for Dubai, Christian? Yeah. So Dubai, of course, uh, over the past uh, years has emerged as a very, very important transshipment hub, uh, not only within the region, um, so the uh, sort of Middle East India uh, trade, uh, Middle East India, East Africa trade, but also um, overall um, globally um, due to its uh, sort of strategic uh, position between the East and the West. 
Uh, and now um, the uh, repercussions of the crisis in the Red Sea could threaten this if this uh, conflict escalates further. I'm thinking sort of uh, about Iran just sitting uh, on the other side of the Strait of Hormuz and what this will mean um, if Iran gets pulled further into this uh, into this conflict um, and tensions um, rise, then this might uh, of course uh, also impact um, Dubai's or Jebel Ali's um, position within within global trade. Christian, um, we're out of time. We're, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time this morning. It is 5.30 a.m. in Hamburg. Appreciate you getting up on a cold January morning. Thanks for your time. That's the voice of Christian Rulofs. He's the CEO of Container Exchange. This is the Business Breakfast on Dubai I 103.8 FM. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Where we are looking in a little bit more detail at one of our top stories this morning job creation. Cooper Fitch has come out with their quarterly report. Uh, we are looking at 3% growth quarter on quarter, 6% year on year for the region. Very pleased to be joined by managing partner from Cooper Fitch, Slev Shekov. Slev, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Brenda. Thanks for having me. 6% growth year on year, but not all Gulf countries have seen equal growth. That's true. So Saudi had a very strong rebound, 6% this quarter over 0% growth in Q3, whereas Huey had 3% growth versus 9 in uh, Q3. Right. Let's start with the UAE. 3% quarter on quarter, bang on average. Uh, what kind of year for job creation was it for a whole, as a whole here? I think holistically, that's still good numbers as uh, UE had a relatively healthy performance throughout 2023. And at the end of the year, it's only natural to expect some adjustments. Businesses are probably taking time to uh, calibrate, reflect and plan for 2024. If we look at Saudi, you've mentioned that 6% rise, but you also said that it's come off flat numbers for the quarter before. What's the bigger picture there? I think Saudi in general has a very uh, buoyant economy at the moment, and that's just a reflection of of that. A number of sectors are pushing ahead with new strategies, and that's reflected in the numbers for Q4. However, we expect even a stronger activity in 2024. Okay, these are percentage increases. Mm. If we are to look at the sheer numbers Mm -hmm. of new jobs being created, what does the split start to look like between countries? I would say Saudi is leading the charge, uh, with probably talking about 60% or so uh, of, of the new jobs and not the replacements, because that's not counting those kind of numbers. And then UE would be number two. Uh, for Q4? For Q4, yeah. Right. What about job destruction, though? And this is one mm. of the things we've been discussing this morning in the light of the Citigroup mm. layoffs. Job creation, absolutely fantastic. But have you seen roles go over the last quarter in the last year? Yeah, it's very interesting. So if you take the tech sector, H1 was pretty flat and we probably saw a number of layoffs as well. Whereas in Q4, there's been a phenomenal growth as well. So it's probably it probably depends from sector to sector uh, too. Well, if we look at that sector, you mentioned mm. um, tech, AI, digital, arguably the big winner out of Q4. Mm. Um, are people managing to find the numbers that they want? Talk to me about the growth you've seen there. Yeah, so I think earlier this year we talked about a lot of conversations happening across AI and data and digital. Well, now they've materialized into concrete jobs, right? Um, and even if you look at the fuller spectrum, there's cyber, I think at 8%, software development at 5 and uh, cloud at 6 There are really strong numbers and business looking to leverage technology more 
and that would continue throughout 2024. Is there a sense, and I guess I'm asking you anecdotally here rather than mm. um, the uh, the quantitative numbers themselves, that companies are redeploying either talent or the money for, for talent when it comes to these AI jobs, which is a question that's being asked in the banking sector at the moment. I think it's a bit of both as well, right? So there, there's an inflow of external talent, but then there's also an initiative to upskill uh, the current workforce and, and really look to invest and, and leverage those technologies as well. I guess what I'm asking is, are we seeing those AI jobs rise at the expense of other roles? Potentially, but but only in certain cases, whereas you would see that AI would be newly created jobs and not necessarily laying off current practices. Not just yet, but I see the trend that it may happen in 2024 more so. Okay, well, let's look at where else we have seen a notable rise in new roles. Talk me through some of those sectors, manufacturing, HR. CEO practice, uh, particularly in Saudi. So real estate, which is no surprise, a number of different startups across the board, but also regional HQs in Saudi Arabia. Some businesses opted to take uh, local talent and lead those offices, but some business actually brought external talent to manage that. Um, That's really interesting. You've seen a 7% uptick, I know, because I've conveniently got the numbers in front of me, uh, in Q4 in the number of CEO roles being created. When you say, especially in Saudi, again, rough feeling, what percentage of those CEO roles are coming from the kingdom? Q4 in Saudi, 80%. 80%. And is that the creation of regional HQs? Not, not all of it. No, majority of it is uh, Vision 2030, creation of new uh, organizations, uh, development of new sectors. But then regional HQ contributed to that, of course. With these roles that we're talking about, these new jobs, what would be the rough split between those that are new setup companies or new companies coming to the region and those that are existing entities here? That's a very good question. I would say 60 to 70% are newly created companies and startups in Saudi. Now, that's just prevalent for that particular market. The economy is growing and there's a new sector development mandate. Slav, we've got a number of questions coming in. Abdul Salam has written in, is this job posting or actual hiring? There's a lot of fake postings out there. What's your reaction? This is actual hiring because this is based on our data and we wouldn't post anything fake, yeah. So those new companies, new jobs being set up in Saudi Arabia, what industries and what areas are you seeing the most activity? Uh, Manufacturing, we've mentioned that. So automotive is a big push, uh, chemicals, energy. By the way, energy is also strong in the UAE with a forecast of over 8% of the oil economy growth. Um, Agriculture is another sector. Um, Particularly Saudi mining will grow quite significantly as well. And where are you finding the people to fill these roles? Are they coming in from outside or already here? It's a bit of both. It's a, I think it's typical for the region to look for external talent, but also try to utilize local talent as much as possible. There's a big drive to upskill national talent in Saudi as well, bring new skills and, and train the workforce to adapt to that. What's happening to the length of the hiring cycle for these roles, particularly in the, in the C-suite? If you're recruiting internationally, that takes a bit of time. It's finding the right talent, assessing, and then also bringing them on board. So I think if it's international, that takes quite a bit of time still. Okay, so this is where we are at the moment. What is your outlook for job creation in 2024? What are you expecting to see? I think there's been growth, and we're quite optimistic about 2024. Um, If you've seen the report, finance jobs are on the rise as well. 
strategy, um, investment, and, and the overall legal as well. So I would say we're quite positive in 2024. And of course, 40 seconds left with you. What effect is all of this having on wages? What did you see in Q4? Um, we are seeing growth. So we've predicted 4.5% growth in UE for 2024, which is quite solid, and 6% for Saudi, which is the highest ever increase we predicted um, since we started doing this kind of reports. Well, thank you so much for joining us and running us through those numbers this morning. Slav Shlakov is the managing partner at Cooper Fitch, coming in with their Q4 job creation report. We appreciate your time. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. You don't need me to tell you that the traffic is bad. Because we're rolling in Yeah, that's a very upbeat look at the traffic, whereas most people are getting rather hot under the collar. So, look, dinner parties, uh, get-togethers, whatever, is one conversation out there. How bad is the traffic in Dubai at the moment? How much worse can it get? And what can be done about it? Well, worry not, because uh, there are those that are thinking outside the box. Uh, James Mullen is the founder of the Witch School Advisor Organisation, and he's been considering what sort of impact that school traffic has on the roads and has come up with a suggestion. James, bless you. Thanks so much indeed for joining us and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you guys. Lovely to be back again. Not such a happy new year on the roads of the UAE. All of us will attest to that. But what can be done? So... I had an idea over the Christmas. Uh, I was reading a story about Montpellier in France, seventh largest city in France, which just before Christmas introduced free transport for its 300,000 residents. And the thought occurred to me, the numbers uh, resonated because that's roughly around about the same number of students who are at schools, about 360,000 uh, students at school in Dubai here. And uh, I thought, right, what if we were to offer free public transport to all of these students, to the teachers as well, and to the sports staff. What difference would that make? On the surface, it seems like a really good idea as well. You've obviously been thinking about this for the last couple of weeks. Are there any hurdles out there at the moment? There will be those, obviously, who are listening in going, yeah, all good and well, but, you know, my school's far out of town, etc. How am I going to get there? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the numbers, uh, so we have our analysis platform called Edstatica, and from that we know that around about 56% of students travel by car to uh, to school. And uh, the vast majority of them travel between 20 minutes and 30 minutes to, to, to school. So even if you take 10, 15% of that number off the road, uh, to those of your listeners who are sitting uh, busy streets in Hessen, Umsakim Street at the moment, uh, there are a lot of schools in and around that area, the difference would be significant. Has it worked in Montpellier? Well, the residents, the vast majority of them in, in, in the first two weeks have taken, um, have taken advantage of that. The, the plan has also been put in place in Luxembourg. So 640,000 residents of Luxembourg uh, have free transport. And originally, this started in Tallinn in Estonia in about 2010. And they have been remarkably successful um, projects. I'm assuming, and obviously this would need a number of organisations to come on board, none more so than the RTA as well. I'm assuming that if teachers need to get to schools, would probably need the uh, or certain um, metro services to start a little bit earlier than they do at the moment because we know people have to get into school very, very early. Um, 
but I like the proactive thing. What about the, 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 the bus companies, though? I'm not sure if they're going to come on board, are they? Um, well, what the, the purpose the purpose of this article was to be provocative and was to um, to get the conversation going. And here we are having the conversation. You're absolutely right. There are certain parties that would need to get involved in this. So you're right. RTA would be key. KHDA as well would need to get involved in this. And I believe there have been discussions between the two parties about how to do this in the past. And I just think that it's time that we had this discussion because, uh, you know, we do face these difficulties. As you say, it's a point of conversation every single day. Uh, Let's try and do something about it. Finger on the pulse uh, with you and the team at which school advisor as well. Would parents buy into this? I think they would. I think they would buy into it. I mean, if it was, you know, so you've got around about 33 percent of of, uh, kids are currently uh, traveling by bus that varies between schools so the you know, the cheaper schools you'll find that the vast majority of the, of the kids are already traveling so they see the benefits of it i just think that if we were to make it more available we would see a massive uptick and there is there is no doubt that there is a knock-on effect isn't there because out of school term the the roads are manageable uh, at the moment so there is a there is a significant impact as soon as term time is on at the moment we all know that yeah. don't we i mean we saw it over the over the winter break we'll see it again um, when the schools break up it's no coincidence that the sco- that we seem to be able to get around dubai much quicker okay uh, messaging for you this morning nice idea yeah. james but will dubai's princes and princesses accept using a bus. Well, why don't we make prince and princesses buses? Uh, Dubai always offers the opportunity. I mean, if you're going for your for your driving lessons these days, you can you can do it in a G wagon. Um, so who's to say that we don't have versions that are available to them? What's been the reaction since you've published the article as well? Has there been a sort of split opinion? It's uh, well, as with any new idea, uh, you'll always find people who will immediately jump back and say it's not going to happen and we shouldn't do it. Um, you're right, there are the bus companies, for instance. Um, so there are existing um, people who are making a lot of money out of this, out of this particular service. And I would say, if we, if, you know, if we begin the conversation, this isn't something that's going to happen in six months. It's not, it's not going to happen in a year. Um, there would be a way in which you could actually bring it in where everybody would be happy. I like it. You know, here we are, us three, for so, quite some time talking about privatisation and IPOs. Let's nationalise the buses, eh? Hey, let's, let's go it, for it. Let's get national service, you know, and get the kids to and from school. Dina, you're a father, buying into it? Look, my, my issue with buses is, well, they are expensive. There's yeah. no question um, at the moment. And that's fine, bus companies, you know, it's, it's not cheap to, to put buses on. But just the timings as well. You know, it, it turns the school day, if you've got to wait for a bus and wait to be dropped off, turns the school day into a... 12-hour door-to-door day. That's one of my challenges. Yeah, well, I mean, having been a parent and having had Mm. children travel by bus, um, I mean, there are certain schools that do it really well and there are other schools that don't do it, don't do it so well at the moment. But I think, you know, public transport is is seen as a very good thing globally. We've had the COP28. We've seen the, you know, get rid of carbon emissions, get the cars off the road. So, um, yeah, this is just an idea that's, that's, that's pitched at that. 
As you said, it's kick-started a conversation. The conversation is running here. Dipti, thank you. Issue with this idea is the final connectivity from metro to school. It's a conversation that will run. But as you say, what with the extension of the metro at the moment? Who knows? Uh, this might be. We might be onto something here. Listen, James, always good to catch up with you. Thanks so much indeed for coming and joining us nice and early uh, on in 2024. We'll catch up with you again very soon. Is the founder of Which School Advisor, James Wallen. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on Dubai Eye. 1038.com You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.